The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. to the book we've been in the last few weeks, and that'll be Philippians. We'll be in Philippians 1, 22 through 30 today. So the second part of our, our message series entitled Gospel-Centered Living, Gospel-Centered Living. As you're turning there, I just want to say a couple things. Some of you have wondered and asked, well, what do we believe as Southern Baptists? Uh, there are little pamphlets out there called the Baptist Faith and Message out on our information rack. Feel free to take one of those, perfectly free and available to you. Uh, it's a nice reminder to why we believe what we believe. We are the largest denomination. Not that that should be a, a streak of pride, but hopefully it'll encourage you that there are like-minded churches all across the nation, all around Kansas City right now, doing the very same thing we're doing. And that's a great encouragement to us. It's kind of like when you show up at some uh, a place and you look around and you don't see anyone you know, but then when you see that friendly face, you know that feeling that you get? Friends, that's the feeling that we should get when we're around other brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. I hope you say amen to that. That's a good thing. Let's go before the Lord as we uh, uh, start this off today in Philippians 1. You know, I, there's always these great stories that come out, and I don't know if you saw the movie a few years ago. It's been several years ago now. Uh, it was Castaway with uh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was a castaway on an island. And there's a story that comes out from the 1700s that's sort of similar that maybe started the story that he did. But a shipwrecked man managed to reach an uninhabited island. He was the only survivor of his ship. And to protect himself against the elements and to safeguard himself against attackers, he painstakingly built a little hut and constantly prayed that someday there might be a ship on the horizon. So every night he'd go out and look for ships. And one evening he was out searching for food before he looked for ships, and he came to find that the little hut, his only habitation that he had, was up in flames. It's not a good thing when you're on an island by yourself. But by divine mercy, this hard time was actually the best thing that could have ever happened to him. You see, a ship had actually passed through that day, and they said this. They had, the captain came to him, and they found him, and they say, how long have you been here? He said, I've been here for several years. They said, we saw your smoke signal and came. If your hut had not caught on fire, we would never have found you. Wow. Think about that for a second. Everything that this man owned had to be destroyed before he could be rescued. There's a life lesson in that in many ways. But isn't life sometimes like that? Don't you feel like sometimes you have to go through the ringer, so to speak, to really feel like you're getting the most out of what you're going through in life? It often gives you a better perspective. And according to the Bible, to gain the world is to not possess Christ and is to lose everything. But to possess Jesus Christ is to gain everything, just like that man gained everything when he was rescued from being shipwrecked. You know, in Acts chapter 9, Paul was told this as he was getting ready to start his journey as a Christian. He was told this very stark reality of a reminder of being a Christian. Ananias told him, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Friends, sometimes when we come to the Christian life, there's a book out there by an author who says that you can have your best life now. But friends, if you want your best life now, follow him. But if you want your best life forever, don't. Because you know what Jesus Christ says? He says that we're not called to have a balanced life, an easy life, or our best life now. But we lose our life, and when we lose our life, what did Jesus say? We find our life. And that's where we're headed this morning. 
just like that man on the island who had to go through everything to get his, his self off the island, so too we must go through stuff, stuff to get where we need to go. But where do we find that perspective we need? That when we face hard times, we are ready to go. Have you realized, though, also that trials are from God? Sometimes we think that trials are just things that happen because of sin, and that's true. But ultimately, the hand, the sovereign hand behind it all is God himself orchestrating events. But if you've ever been in a tough time, you've got to ask yourself, God, why am I here? Why have you placed me here in this time for this place for this purpose? And often in trials, what do we try and do? We try and take control, don't we? Well, if I can just change this around and this around, then maybe life will be just a little bit easier. But our big idea today that I want to get across is this. If you want to live the gospel-centered life, gospel-centered living involves and requires gospel-centered suffering. This isn't going to be the most popular message ever, is it? Especially in America. But our lives are about something far greater than ourselves. When we think about suffering, we often think it's all about us. It's all about our family. But boy, it could not be further from the truth. God can and will put us through suffering to bring himself glory. And he is right to do so because that is his character. But if you spend your whole life trying to avoid the hard times of life, you will miss out on using that hard time as a way for God to demonstrate to your non-believing friends how God can work even in the hardest of times. So friends, this morning where we are headed is three things. And there's always three things. A Baptist preacher, you've got to have three things. Anything less, I don't know. Anything more is, is, just, is just not whatever we do. But as a Baptist, as a Christian, as someone who believes in Christ, how can you hold strong when the gospel itself is at question, when you're suffering for it? Three things this morning. First, you need to have a commitment. You need to be committed to what God has called you to do. Second, you need to be consistent. You need to live consistently from verse 27. And lastly, we'll look at the characteristics of what that looks like. Just to give you a preview of where we're going, the, the first point's going to be the shorter two. Second point's going to be a little bit longer. Third point's going to be about the same as number two. But often, isn't it true, when we have hard times, we ask ourselves this question. Do I believe that my neediness is a good or bad thing. Lord, I'm, I'm needy right now. Is that a good or bad thing? But friends, this question may not have much importance to you if your life is fine. But it grows in importance. Your need grows in importance when you grow to know God better because you will learn that as you follow Christ, you have one choice to make. Two choices, really. You can follow Christ in the difficult times and say, God, I'm with you. I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't like it. But God, I'm going to do it. Or you can choose to run the other way and say, I want nothing to do with this. God, take it away. Let it go. Get it out of my life, God. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to pray to you. I'm not going to do anything for you, God, until you get rid of this. Wow. Which way do we follow? That's where we're headed today. Paul's in some tough times, isn't he? He's in prison. Paul's 800 miles away from the Philippians. He's got a life choice to make. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. That's in Caesar's hands. But he knows this one thing. Is that to live the gospel-centered life, he has to go through gospel-centered suffering. Wow. Not something that most Americans want to hear, is it? And we're in church, and you can say amen. Go, go make a commercial about suffering and see how much marketing input you get back on that. Probably not a lot of positive stuff. Friends, this is what we believe. But God is in the center of it. That means God can take us through it. Let's stand together as we read Philippians 1, chapter 
22, verses 22 through 30, if you're able to stand. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And I'll actually move back to verse 21 where we were last week. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Verse 27, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may have hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in any way by your opponents. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But here's the good part. But of your salvation, and who is it from? It's from God. For it has been granted to you, or, or gifted to you, that you, for the sake of Christ, should not only believe in him, that's the salvation, but also suffer for his sake. Let me interrupt right there. Wait, God grants us? He gifts us suffering? Hmm. We'll get there later on. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now I hear that I still have. God is a good God. And he gets us through suffering because the gospel has gotten us through the worst suffering we could ever imagine. We who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that's where we're headed today. Let's bow before the Lord and we'll start off this, this morning. Father, we are so grateful that we live in America, Lord. We are blessed to live in America. The freedoms that we have are more than we can ever imagine if we were to step in a country that didn't have them, Lord. But Father, most of all, we're grateful for the spiritual freedom in Christ. For according to Galatians, with you there is freedom and we can walk in that. But Lord, we know that this life is not easy. Father, there's many, there's been many surgeries this week. There's many of our church members who are at home because of things. And Lord, there's life that happens. But Father, how do we get through that? We pray as we study this that you would give us insights into your word, how Paul dealt with it. And therefore, it's your authoritative word how we would deal with it. Father, thank you for each of the members here. And I pray whatever they're going through, whatever our church is going through, that our focus would be on you. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you very much. So it is the question that we have to ask is, how do we get through these hard times? Well, if you notice in verse 22, Paul is trying to make a choice. He has a big choice to make. He's torn between the two choices, you could say. He's torn in two directions. Father, if I stay here and live, it's good for the Philippians. But if I die, wow, I get to be with Jesus Christ. Maybe you feel that way or felt that way before. And he goes on in verse 23, he says, I'm hard-pressed. He's literally, it's like, a, it's like one of those squeezes you try and squeeze through and kind of sneak through is the word. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Isn't it always better to be with Jesus when hard times come? That is the best place you can be. But the first thing I want to get a point across to you today is that it is a mistake, it is an error to present a church without suffering. I would be failing, a big pastor fail hashtag, if you want to call it that, if I did not tell you that you will suffer in this Christian life. Friends, you will not live a beautiful life unless you know that you will suffer through for Jesus Christ in this life. But Paul is using an expression here that many of you have boats. Paul's using an expression here in verse 23 where it's like a boat being tied onto the dock. And the expression he's using is that 
the boat is about to be untied. The anchor's being pulled up. And it's something that eventually that boat will go out to sail. And he's saying to the Philippians that God may be lifting the anchor, God may be untying the rope, and God may be departing him to eternal life with Christ. What a joy that's going to be, that someday we will be with Jesus Christ. Friends, again, just a rehash from last week, it's not the streets of gold or the gates of pearl or the, the walls of precious metals. It is Jesus Christ. And Paul can face the reality that if he dies or if he lives, it is going to be far better because God is the one who's the author of the suffering he's going through. What a way to approach death, right? What a way to approach life. What a way to look at life. You know, it's often been said that no one, have you heard this before? No one is actually ready to live until they're ready to die. Have you all heard that expression before? Friends, that's very true with your Christian faith. Nothing lays bare our biblical truths more than suffering. Nothing brings up all those Sunday school lessons you've gone through, all those books you've read, all those Bible verses that you've memorized until God puts you in a tough spot. But he goes on in verse 24. He says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Whose account? The Philippians. Obviously, Paul would prefer to be in heaven, as we will if we're Christian. But he is willing to stay. He's willing to stay chained to a Roman guard 18 inches away, 24-7, 365, if that means that these people will grow in Jesus Christ. God, give me a heart like that as a pastor. What an amazing thing that is as God is using him through this thing. He goes on in verse 25. He says, I'm convinced of this. He doesn't say, ah, this might happen. He says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Why does Paul feel suffering is good for him and the church? Because he's seeing them grow as Christians, and it gives him joy to see that. Friend, when you go through suffering, you may be the instrument God uses to grow someone else. You may be the person that God uses to challenge their faith and say, look, they're going through everything hard. I don't understand why they're going through this hard time, but God is using that, and I want to be a part of that. He goes on in verse 26. So that, because of me, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. If I can state it another way, the biblical pattern across the whole Bible, from Adam all the way back to the end, is that suffering precedes glory. Suffering before glory. If you turn on the TV and someone says to you that you can have your best life now, can I just say it as plain as day as I can, that person is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Change the channel. Friends, God has promised you that he will give you joy in this life. God has promised you he will give you his presence in this life. God has promised you that you have the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity living in you. But Paul understood that his reason in this life is that God is going to use the most difficult, hard, heart-wrenching times of his life to bring glory to himself. And if you turn on the TV and someone says, if you just send in this amount of money, if you just pray this way, if you put your hand up five times and pray this way, I'm going to send you a blessing. Friends, the greatest blessing you can have is to count Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen? The only way anyone can live exclusively for Jesus Christ in this way is you're not living for Tower View Baptist Church. You're not living to be a good, moral person. You're not living for your pastor no, you are solely, completely, no matter what life throws at you, living for Jesus Christ. Paul says, I don't know whether to choose life or death. He says, look, life is to serve Christ. 
that's a good thing. I don't like the suffering. I don't like it. But God has promised he'll use it. But death is to live on with Christ. Uh, many of you all know this name, but it's been, it's been almost 20 years. I was a, a teenager when this uh, gentleman died. But the great, uh, the great designer, Gianni Versace. That, that just sounds like a spaghetti sauce, doesn't it? Gianni Versace. And before he was uh, murdered uh, in the late 90s, uh, he was a designer in Italy, very famous designer. He, he was asked about his religious convictions. It's ironic that he had this conversation just a few months before his death, unfortunate death. He said, I believe in God, but I'm not the kind of religious person who goes to church and believes in the fairy tale of Jesus in the stable with the donkey. That's not, well, I'm not that stupid. I can't believe that God, with all the power that that God has, had to have himself born in a stable. And here's the catch. I, Gianni Versace, would not have been that comfortable. Hmm. Friends, but that is exactly the kind of God we know and worship, isn't it? He gave up, God in Jesus Christ gave up his comfort in order that we might have eternal glory. To miss that is to miss the point. And the same is true for you as it was for Paul. God has purposed, he's planned, and he has put out there that all the areas of your life where you experience pain and suffering are the very places where he displays that he alone is sufficient. He alone is enough, and he alone brings glory to himself. And not just so you can see it, but so other people around you can look at you and say, man, you are going through the hardest time in my life, but why do you have joy? Why do you have peace? Why is there some difference about you that when I suffer, I don't have that? Friends, and that's what the Philippians needed to hear. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were being brought into prisons and, and going through some tough, tough times. But boy, Paul told them to stick with it, to stick with it. So what do you do when you go through a hard time? Pray that God would enable you, Christian, to pick it up and set it down in the middle of your faith and say, God, I don't understand this, but I have doubts about it, but I'm going to look towards Christ because he is more important. Friends, you exist here for the pleasure of God. You exist here to do two things in this life. Uh, the old Westminster Catechism said, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Sometimes glorying God is in our hardest times. But if you know that God is sovereign, he is good, God is faithful, he is loving and just, then you can trust him no matter what comes your way. That is the call he gives us, the call that is a necessity for living the Christian life. You say, well, Darren, how does that relate to being committed? Well, if you've ever gone through a hard time, you know it's being committed. I've run six marathons. Don't say that to say, hey, look at Darren, I'm just telling you. You know, I ran my first marathon. I got out there, I was running uh, 6.45 minute mile pace, which is about 30 seconds faster than I should have been going. Just trucking along. This is great. I've heard about this thing called the wall where you hit it and you just kind of, you don't know what happens. Nah, it's mile 20 of 26, no big deal. Yeah, that happened. It happened quick. Hit the wall. It took me an hour to finish what had taken me less than an hour. It should have taken me another 30 minutes to finish up. Friends, you don't know what happens till it hits you. Life happens, doesn't it? But what God tells us is, that our lives are to be marked by a commitment to him. That no matter if you live on or you die, that Christ is at the center. Is that how you, is that how I have handled my hard times? Let's move on. Paul goes on in verse 27, if you want to continue on with me. He talks about having a commitment to a gospel-centered life. He also talks about having a consistency. Look back at verse 27. 
only let your manner of life be so worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, basically whether I live or die, Paul says, I may hear of you, you're standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. We're going to look at the first part of that. Friends, the first thing I want to tell you, though, before we move on, is that self-denial is the first lesson in Christ's school for you. Self-denial is the first lesson. What do I mean by that? Paul begins by telling them they must live in the midst of all their suffering in a consistent way, denying themselves. But this should leap off the page. He says only. Notice that word only there, if you have that word. It means just this one thing. It's a rifle focus. It's the, it's the focus of his life. Nothing else, only. This and this alone. Basically, he's saying live in a way that honors and glorifies God. Live in a way that's consistent with the gospel. When you're going through suffering, live in a way that's consistent. That means denying yourself sometimes. Denying the urge to say, God, take this away. It means having death to self. God, this is so hard, I don't get it. But what it means is, it means to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. God, I saw, I read in the Gospels that you commanded the wind and the waves, but God, why can't you take this away? And what he calls for us to do is to leave the world behind and to follow Christ. Friends, you may not have an answer to every question about why you went through hard times in this life, and that's okay. You know why? Job asked that same question, didn't he? Job asked that same question. God came back to him for three chapters and said, where were you? Fill in the blank. Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? But there is a way to live in hard times that he talks about. Let's move on. He says, only live in a manner or conduct yourselves in a manner. Friends, our conduct is very important to God. The way we live our lives is so important to God. No believer is to be laissez-faire. Is, uh, is that French? I don't know. And to be, It's French. Thank you, Tina. And to be passive in their life. But here, that word conduct yourself is actually one word. It's, I won't say the Greek word, but it's a compound word. It literally means a politics or politicians. Polos is the root word. It's the idea that these people in Philippi have a citizenship. The history of it is, is back in the day, uh, before Philippi was a Roman city, the Romans came in and conquered that city of Philippi. And when they conquered that city of Philippi, they liked the place the soldiers did where they were living, so they just said, hey, can I cash in early, get my retirement, and live right here? And, and uh, Caesar at the time said, perfect, you can do that. And so they lived, these soldiers did, in the city. And so Philippi, where Paul's writing this letter, has a special significance. These are Roman citizens with Roman benefits and Roman laws. But the word here has a double meaning. Paul is telling them, you have a special citizenship, Philippians. You are citizens of Rome, which back then was a big, big thing. People give their lives to be a citizen of Rome. Citizen of Rome. But Paul has another mind in here. He says, not only are you a citizen of Rome, but you are to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and the glory and the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Flip over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 for a second. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. I'll show this to you very quickly. Paul says it this way, and we'll be here in a, uh, later in July. But Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is telling them is to live a committed, consistent life in the gospel. It's to know that your citizenship is here, but ultimately it's up there. And when you suffer, you're not just suffering in this world. You have a God who sees your suffering and knows that you are a citizen of heaven above. 
But how does this apply to us? Let me just interject here. Uh, we live in a very uh, culture that kind of goes against this. You're here today, you're most likely a citizen of the United States. Can I encourage you to pay your taxes, observe the laws, serve as the government would allow you to serve. Yes, we have a citizenship in this country, but our citizenship is not based on an American flag. Our citizenship ultimately, folks, is based on what Jesus Christ did in the gospel, that he died, he buried, and was rose again. Our allegiance to Jesus Christ is greater than our allegiance to, to the U.S. Whew. Let me say it this way. Obedience to earthly authority is part of a greater obedience to God, unless it contradicts the Bible. That is so key. So many people want to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I, I shouldn't have to obey the speed limit because God said I don't have to obey the laws. I'm a, I'm a citizen of heaven. Oh yeah, tell that to the cop when you get pulled over someday. What Paul is saying here is to live the committed, consistent Christian life is to know that your citizenship ultimately is here right now on earth, but ultimately it's in heaven with Christ. And this verb here, to conduct yourselves, is in the present tense. It means that every moment of every day, there's not a moment at which that our dual citizenship is not in play. It's in the middle voice, if I can just be geeky-greeky for a second. It means the middle voice is not just for the pastor, it's not for just for Paul, it's not just for the Philippians, it's for every person. It's second person plural, meaning it's, it's y'all. It means it's you all. It's not just a certain aspect. And it's a command. Paul commands them to live this way. It's not just a mere wish or desire. Hey, I hope you do that. If you're here today, are you a citizen of Jesus Christ? Do you know if you died today, if you would be in heaven with Christ because he is your Lord and your Savior? Friends, if you don't know Christ, talk to me afterwards. Talk to John, our deacon back there, and, and Kim and if you don't know this, our deacons sit back there. If you ever have a prayer need after service or ever have a need, talk with them. They would love to speak with you. But isn't that the way we're supposed to live our lives? But he goes on. Did you catch this? He goes on. Well, conduct yourselves as a member of the, the place you live, but also the place you're, you're going heaven. But he also says that we are to do it worthy of the gospel. Wow. That's tough stuff. That is a tough statement. We are basically to take all the commands of the Bible and it's boiled down to this one thing. Live a life worthy of the gospel. What does this mean? Well, first off, it means just as Saul learned when, when Samuel and Saul were back in the Old Testament, God does not desire the stuff we bring him. He desires our hearts. He desires our hearts. He wants obedience rather than sacrifice. He wants you, yourself, and your heart. So you say, I can't give a lot. Is your heart right before God? So you say, I don't have a lot of time. Is your heart right before God in the things that you do have time to do for him? How, what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? It means we are to, to basically be a repenter. We are to know that our lives are to be marked by continuing confession of our sin before God. How do we live worthy of the gospel? We remember that we are nothing without Christ. We remember that we are nothing without him in our hearts and that he himself is the one that has forgiven our sin. It means that you go to God, not just every now and then or when you have a big oops. It means you go to God even for the smallest things of your life. God, forgive me because we've been bought with a price. It means we're to be a cross bearer. It means in everything that we do, we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. Do you see what you have to do, Christian, this morning? Is there an area of your life where you need to take up your cross? Is there an area of your life where you need to repent and take it before God? Because nothing is laid bare before God except all that he knows. So why does he say this? He says so that, and then he continues, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. 
You know, I've heard a lot of people say that I would do a lot better if I could just carry my pastor around wherever I go. I would, I would live a better Christian life if my pastor would follow me to work every day, read all my emails, listen to all my conversations, and do all that sort of thing. Now, as much as I'd love to be go to work with you, I can't do that. And your Sunday school teacher can't do that. Your small group leader can't do that. So what is Paul saying? Paul's reminding them that their source of strength is not him. He's reminding them their source of strength is not their congregation, but it is Jesus Christ himself. If you go to work, most likely you may be one of the few Christians that are there. If you go to your home, some of you may be the only Christian that's there. In reality, all that matters to Paul is that God has given you his Holy Spirit, and that is enough to live. No matter if you're in Russia, like, like Luke, I'm pointing at Deb because we were talking about him earlier this week, whether you're in the office or on the floor or the assembly line, wherever you're at, God has given you enough strength in him to live for him. Should you go to church? Amen, yes. Should you go to Sunday school? Absolutely. But know when you're out there that Christ is enough for you to live. Parents, I think some of you will appreciate this. Uh, there was a dad who sent this text back to his son. And his son uh, was out, uh, going out late, and his dad said this, Dad, your cur- the dad says, your curfew is 1 a.m. Don't be late. If you're late, you'll be punished by spending time listening to me make clever conversation. Some of you have teenagers appreciate that. Or there's another one that came out a couple weeks ago where the mom got a text from the teenager, and she said that, Mom, I'm out with several of my friends from school and should be home in about an hour. If I'm not home in an hour, just read this text again and again and again and again. Wow. No teenager has ever done that, right? Just because you're not there doesn't mean you should have that same frame of mind. What Paul is reminding these Christians is that no matter what location they're in, that the message is the same. Whether you're at home by yourself, in the office by yourself, the car by yourself, you're at the library, you're at the restaurant, you're with your family, you're away from your spiritual leaders, we can't use an excuse to say, my pastor wasn't there, or if only so-and-so would have been there, I would never have sinned. Friends, the Holy Spirit is enough for you to live the power, gospel-centered life, even in the midst of gospel-centered suffering. When you are away from God-called men and women, your Christian life may be at full capacity because God is at work in you. What does this mean for us today? If you're going through a very hard time, let me remind you of this, especially as it relates to the public context. The government is one of the number one way that a Christian can engage an area that God is not part of. Are you praying for your leaders? You know, in the ne- I'd anticipate this week or the next, we're going to have a major decision on our hands, folks. Gay marriage is going to be decided. We, let me just state publicly, this is going to go online. It's everywhere. We believe marriage as Christians are between one man and one woman for a lifetime. No more, no less. And I say that with all love in my heart. I say that with all intentionality. But we are to be honest citizens and pray for our leaders. Pray for your Supreme Court justices now as they make this decision. Say, what if it goes the other way that we don't like it? We're going to suffer some, aren't we? And we're going to live the gospel-centered life. But friends, we can obey our government as long as God tells us to, because that's what it says. If they go against that decision, we are standing on the God's word, because that's what God's word says. Amen? Give your coin to Caesar, but give yourself to God. Obedience to earthly authority is only greater obedience to God. You owe God your very self. Pay your taxes, serve, serve on board, serve on community things, but know ultimately that your consistent, committed Christian life in the midst of suffering is to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's move on. Talks about being committed. Talks about being 
um, consistent. The last thing he wants you to see is this. Verse 27. We'll end this verse and move on. Verse 27. Paul says this. He says, I hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. And it is not, not frightened in any way by your opponents. For this is a clear sign of destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul gives us three characteristics from this text quickly that he talks about, about being a committed Christian in the midst of suffering, a gospel-centered Christian. First, he says they're going to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. This is not to be pushed around. This is anchored in a place, and there's no reverse gear that you can throw it to and get out of Dodge quickly. We have taken our stand, Paul says to them, and you're immovable because your convictions are the gospel. It's a military term, that phrase, standing firm in one spirit. Many of you have done military duty. You know when they say, hold the line, that you're to hold the line. It sounds pretty obvious, but it's hard to do, I can imagine. When you are holding that line, the enemy looks for the weakest link, don't they? They look for the person who's going to run back, get out of Dodge, and go for it. But what Paul's telling them is don't back down, don't turn and run, be immovable. You know, Satan is trying his hardest. He's throwing all the arsenal of hell at Tower View Baptist Church every day. This is a gospel-centered church. We lift up this word of God as being the word of God. We don't believe this is some fairy tale. We don't believe this is just some made-up thing. Of This is God's word that God himself spoke, and it's all sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. We preach it week after week after week after week, and that's what we stand on. But there is a red laser beam focused on Tower View Baptist Church in the eyes of Satan and hell because we are in his crosshairs because he knows the more we stand on this, the greater impact we'll have on his kingdom. And he will do everything to find that weakest member, the weakest person who will do anything in their lives except follow Jesus Christ. And once he gets on the inside, what does he do? He begins to pass along a bad attitude, a bad spirit, and he tries to drive a wedge into the unity that we have here at Tower View. What Paul is telling them, what Tower View we need to hear today, he's saying, stand firm. Don't hold your position, or hold your position. Don't move back. Don't put the armor down. Be on guard. Because Satan will look for that weakest link, and he will do anything to get in. He's looking for someone to devour. And they can't flee. They can't give in. They can't raise the white flag of surrender. They have to stay the course. How do they stay the course? With one mind and with one spirit. It is, it is a picture in the Greek of interlocking arms, of doing everything to stand together no matter what. You know why? And this is the first point I want to give you is part of the reason you join a church is that you don't suffer alone. Have you ever thought about that before? Part of the reason you join a church is so that you don't suffer alone. Friends, when Satan is attacking you at all points with all spiritual warfare, and believe me, spiritual warfare is real, that you have to link arms together under the gospel. It's not just enough for the seven deacons here and and the pastor and, and Mark as worship leader to help us stand together. It is a call for every Christian in this room to be united under the flag of Jesus Christ. But when a little drop of quote-unquote arsenic gets through the line into the quote-unquote water of Tower View Baptist Church, it spreads, doesn't it? Friends, I would encourage you that before you do anything, that you remember that we are called to stay together. Not just stay together and sing Kumbaya, not just to stay together because there's great food, and there is great food, 
here at Tower View Baptist Church. We stay together because Jesus Christ died for our souls. Amen? He said, first off, how do you, how do you stay the gospel-centered life in suffering? You stay one mind, one spirit. Secondly, verse 27, he says, stay together for the gospel, side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's the difference between your Bible and black and white and color. What Paul is telling them is one word in the Greek. It's the word, I'm going to say it here, and, and you probably know what it is when I say it. It's atletho, atletho, athletics, athletes, competition. And it has the prefix with, with, and what that means, it's they're contending and competing together. It's like a wrestling match. You can imagine all of us in the WWE standing together in the, in the ring against everybody else, striving together for the sake of the gospel. That's kind of what he's saying. We're one team trying to advance the gospel against an oncoming army that's trying to do everything to stop us with all their might. They must maintain their unity. Why? Because it's the gospel. It's the, the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, as Jude said. And any division in their team would be a defeat for the full team. One sin in this church doesn't just affect that one person, does it? It affects everybody. We are saved sinners in here if you're a Christian here today. But one thing I want to encourage you to do is your sin is not so ugly that we haven't seen it. God is a merciful, gracious God. Take it before Him. Repent. Seek Him. Because your sin, my sin, our sin can affect our witness and our outreach. But he says, don't be alarmed by false teachers. Why? Why should they not be alarmed in verse 28 by false teachers? Because God is at the center. As you stand for the gospel, you're making a loud and clear statement. It is such a strong statement that it's a sign to unbelievers and it's a sign of their destruction. It's a sign of the truthfulness to the gospel. Do you want to know, we don't have to go out. I went, did the streets of Westport for years and preached on the streets and that's, that's a good and great thing. But that's not what he's talking about here. We are to lock arms and not turn against our brothers and sisters. If you hear something in this church, don't believe it. Go talk to the person. Pray for them. Don't let gossip ruin our fellowship. When we are yakking and nitpicking one another and talking about others behind their backs, it's a crummy testimony to unbelievers. I can give you fraternities and sororities sometimes that don't stab Christians in the back as much, not at this church necessarily, but as some churches I've been a part of. And some of you have been part of those churches, haven't you? Where you just walk in and it's like, man, the knives are out, the guns are out. It's like a, it's a showdown at the old Western Corral, man. It's, it's all over the place. But why does he say, strive together for the gospel? Did you catch that part? I've emphasized it a couple times. Because it's your salvation. It's your salvation. And that is from God. Destruction for those who don't know the gospel, but salvation for you. What an amazing thing. Friends, gospel-centered living means that you're going to have reproach. You're going to have rejection. You're going to have ridicule. You're going to have to give up popularity. Young people, can I just tell you, I have a Twitter, I have a Facebook. Don't post stuff on social media just to see how many likes you can get. We all do that. Even as parents, I think we sometimes, like, oh, let me put a cute picture. And we do it. But don't do it to be popular. If you're going to put something about Jesus, do it because you love Jesus, right? Something I need to focus on my own heart. Gospel-centered living in the midst of gospel-centered suffering means we're giving up pleasures, possessions, slander, shame, stigma, because it's all under the cross of Christ. Friends, if we know that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, was persecuted, how can we think that we ourselves as sinners will not be persecuted? But how do we do this? We do it 
Juntos together. If, you remember, if you're a Royals fan, you remember, uh, I don't remember the, the guy's name, the manager, Juntos Podemos, together we can. If you remember that from 10 years ago, if you're a Royals fan, kind of what Paul's getting at here too. So he says, strive together, do these things. The last thing he says is suffer together for the gospel. Look at verse 29. Suffer together for the gospel. For it has been granted to you or gifted to you that for who? The sake of Christ, you, that's all of us, should not only believe in him, that's Christ, but also suffer for his sake, Christ's sake. For to you, to every believer. Not merely the deacons or the overseers that we read about in verse 1 of this chapter, but it's there. The word there for granted is the word grace. He's graced it to you. Wow. What has God graced to you? God has graced to you salvation. Friends, we believe that man has a free will, a free will to go to hell, quite frankly. That doesn't mean he has a free will to go to heaven. Because if we could get to heaven by our own works, Jesus had no reason to die. But that is why, according to his infinite mercy, God has much love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's something that God must give us. Faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by what you are saved? By grace you have been saved. And it is a what? A gift of God. When he gives the gift of faith, God enables us to call upon his name. What a humility that should bring to us. I know uh, having gone to seminary, and I think anyone who's gone to a seminary or Bible college has this, is that you think you have all the answers, right? A young 22-year-old is going to step into a church with a seminary degree and change the world. That's how you feel. And then you get in and realize that, boy, they're just as sinful as I am. Or I'm even more sinful than they are. And what does that tell us? It's a reminder that we did not come to Jesus Christ because we're smarter, went to Bible college, we had a higher IQ, more books, or we could type faster on the internet and get the answer before anyone else in class, or we went to college. Friends, we need to remember that God has given us salvation, and that is a humble thing. If you're praying for your family members, give God time to work in their hearts. Some of your family members are suffering some great, great things. Friends, sometimes the hardest times your family members can go through who aren't Christians are a prayer that God would use you to share the gospel with them. Because when people are at their lowest, they're often more open, aren't they? Let's pray for that. We can't force anyone to believe. It is a sovereign work of an almighty God. I can go to the most, I can go to the best marketing firm in New York City on Wall Street take them all the things about the gospel, have them slick it up, throw it up there, get a nice big sign with all the things. I can look great. I got my hair slicked back. I need a haircut anyway. Hair slicked back, all that stuff. And I can take it to someone and present it to them. And they can look at me square in the face and say, get out of here. I want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. People are not saved because of how well we present the gospel. They're saved when God works in their hearts. Are you praying for those people in your life? He says, not only are you given gifts of salvation, you're also given the gift of suffering. Their twin gifts are bound together. No one who comes to Christ in salvation is without the second gift, suffering. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Beloved, 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do not be surprised. Don't be surprised when it comes. Why do we suffer through all these things? Why do we go through all these things? Because as a church together, friends, we will never be friends with the world. Mark my words. If Tower View Baptist Church ever becomes 
a church where people don't look and say the gospel's not preached, the Bible's not taught, then you better go to another church. How's that for church growth for you right there? I'm going to end with this because I'm short on time. Amy, if you want to go ahead and throw up that last slide. I'm not going to have time to go through all these. I wish I did. I, I made this a little longer, but I want you to write these down. If you're into writing, taking notes, this would be a great slide to take down. Why is suffering a gift? Why is it a gift? Why would God say that you're saved, but also that you're given the gift of suffering? I'm just going to read through these quickly. No commentary, just reading through. Why is suffering a gift? Because it assures your salvation. It brings you nearer to Christ. It separates us, the church, you, me, all of us sinners saved from the world. Suffering for the gospel spreads the gospel. Go read Acts chapter 5. But boy, the best one. Suffering for Jesus Christ will greatly be rewarded someday. Let me say a word of caution as we end. If you are suffering for Christ, that doesn't mean, as I used to think as a young, dumb Christian, that you go out, you look for opportunities to annoy people, and you say, man, I got persecuted for Jesus today. Woo! Amen. There it is. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being the obnoxious coworker who goes up and hands a tract to him every day saying, hey, did you get one of these? It's not what we're talking about. Should you be open to, if God brings an opportunity every day for you to share the gospel, absolutely. I'm not telling you not to be bold. I'm not telling you not to be courageous. I'm not telling you not to be hardcore for Jesus. What I am saying is do it with patience. Gentle as servants. Are ge- what is it? Uh, gentle as servants is wise as, do- wise as serpents, gentle as doves. I'm getting that background mixed up. This doesn't mean you have a martyr complex. It doesn't mean woe is me. Someone said something about me and man, my life is over. Friends, that's not what we're talking about. Don't conjure up those two things. What I'm talking about is when you legitimately live for Christ consistently, when you legitimately live for Christ committedly, when you legitimately live for Christ with all the characteristics we quickly went through, your life is going to be different and people will sometimes say, hey, I don't want that, get away. They may do it non-verbally. They may not want to come sit next to you at lunch. They may not want to come sit with you at the dinner table at your next family gathering. Praise God that we have the ability to suffer for that name, if that's the case. Gospel-centered living requires and involves gospel-centered suffering. That is the truth. Friends, your best life is not now. Your best life is coming, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? And you can live abundantly in this life, no matter what you go through. He's a faithful God. Let's go forward in prayer today.